I moved to Austin in 1986. I was looking for just somewhere to go that wasn't uh, my parents' house and somewhere that, where that might have been taking a chance other than L.A., which felt like the center of the universe. And Austin definitely was not. I expected stagecoaches and tumbleweeds, and I got 100-degree heat in the middle of September, which was another kind of a shock. According to my guidebook, uh, I wandered the drag by day and 6th Street by night for a couple of weeks until I ran into what ended up being one of my closest friends at an REM concert. He randomly hooked me up with a home with a bunch of people, and that gave me this uh, jet start into my, my life here that lasted over 30 years. I'm Adam Sultan, and this is I Love You So Much. Welcome to I Love You So Much, the Austin 360 podcast, a show for everyone caught up in an ongoing love affair with Austin, even if it's complicated. I'm your host, Tali Mosley. I'm Omar Gayaga. And I'm Addie Broyles, coming to you from the shores of Lady Bird Lake in the offices of the Austin American Statesman. In this week's episode, Beth Belanti of Tito's Vodka reveals how the business has shifted from a vodka company to a philanthropy organization that just so happens to sell vodka. From stray dog rescue to natural disaster relief, she explains how Tito's found its bigger mission and offers inspiration for companies looking to find theirs. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Statesman's feature editor Sharon Chapman joins us to talk about Won't You Be My Neighbor, the new Mr. Rogers documentary, which played at South by Southwest this year. If you want to cry in a good way and restore your faith in humanity, then chances are this movie is for you. Texan's favorite contraction word has its own special backstory. On this week's Web Report, Statesman Web Editor Eric Webb dives into the secret history of y'all, which remains the verbal trademark of Texans everywhere. We'll end, as always, with our recommendations in a toast, but first, Beth Belanti. The founder of Vodka for Dog People hosts Yappy Hours all over town, where dogs and their owners come out to commune. Today, she shares how humans can deepen their own connections, starting at their work cubicles. Hi, Beth. Welcome to I Love You So Much. Thanks for having me. Okay, so Beth, you've been with Tito's Vodka for a long time, Mm -hmm. and you've seen the brand evolve. I was particularly interested in something you said off mic about where Tito's is today versus the beginning. So can you explain to us now why Tito's is actually not a vodka company anymore? (laughs) Well, we make vodka and we sell vodka. Um, But I will say that our true purpose kind of evolved and unfolded over the years, especially for Tito. I mean, it's his heart and and the people he's attracted to him, you know, that are so passionate that work for him. Um, But it's become very much a philanthropy-based company. Um, That happens to sell vodka. Yes. Um, You won't, you know, see a lot of of marketing dollars thrown anywhere, but we are now uh, participating with nonprofits, partnering on up to 8,000 uh, partnerships a year, helping nonprofits uh, do their best work. That's amazing to me. Was that um, built into the DNA of Tito's from the beginning, and it just became more clear of a vision as time went on, or did something happen in Tito's life that redirected it? It was always part of what we did because my first experiences there were that he and I were sort of 
you know, taking a case of vodka. I was on the board of the Girls Empowerment Network back then. And so that was like automatic that I was already doing events for them. And then, oh, suddenly I can now help you all out with the bar, you know, and Tito was some of his first um, nonprofit uh, partnerships were with um, Lone Star Paralysis Fund. I mean, there's so many. So we were already just giving away probably like half the vodka. Um, But it was just, it's just like this, this dog culture we have. Like we never talked about it or discussed it. It wasn't a plan. (laughs) It was just what we did. And we had no money. It was in terrible debt, you know, when I started. And so all we had was the vodka. And we were already people that were getting out and going to things. So what does dog culture look like at at Tito's? Uh, It's overrun. It's madness. It's wonderful. It's all really centered. There were were always rescue dogs that you had at the distillery, right? The distillery is in a very um, rural part of Austin, which of course now is near a toll road, but um, there's still, I mean, we rescued up until last week our 87th stray. So people just dump them out there or they don't get spayed and neutered and they run in wild packs and they're hungry or they're shot basically. So we just absorb them and most of us now just keep them or people we know take them. So you were always taking care of and rescuing dogs, but three years ago you launched Well, we launched it for dog people. Yeah, we launched it seven years ago, but it got so popular amongst our company and the sales force that they wanted to start fundraising for animals in their communities. And so I had to just sort of focus really on that because it was just my hobby I've been doing since, you know, my first memory of my parents is rescuing dogs. So I was already doing that my whole life. And then it was just natural that Tito and I were we're doing that. And then as we hired people, they were automatically dog people. So we were just always taking them in. And then the dog content, when I was trying to find them homes, and I kind of labeled them, you know, distillery dogs. So that was getting too popular on social. And they, everyone at work was like, Beth, you got to move the dog content. It's taking, you know, the shine <laughs> off the vodka. Yeah. So, um, so it was just like my little love project. And, and we were really just trying to pay it forward to Emancipat, who'd helped us fix up all these dogs that we found um, not fixed. Mm-hmm. And um, so we wanted to pay that forward. And, and the whole vision of Austin, you know, saving uh, 98% now, I think, of our homeless animals. We, we wanted to take the formula of Emancipat to the world so that we can start this kind of... Um, Revolution and and it's actually a formula. Movement around it's a animal movement. rehabilitation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like t- the more we spay and neuter and let people afford to have pets, the less right. they'll end up in the shelter. So that's how vodka for dog people. That was our mission, and that was you know lasted five minutes until like our our sales teams were like, well, you know, we wanted you know. So I was like, oh gosh, how am I going to scale this outside of Emancipat? So that's how vodka for dog people happened. I, they just sort of rose up and were like, you're doing this job. This is a thing. We all want to do it. So it's our first permanent cause marketing program. Um, and like I said, dogs are our story, and it's a nonstop story. We have them, we have pet-friendly offices. You know, I, we do so much to promote people um, and in policy, really, of how to work with animals there. But it's, there's so many great things that happen when you allow that um, for people um, and their adjustment of the day or stress levels and, and how much they work. It just... I don't know. So then there's the pet-friendly office, and then we have a permanent distillery dog pretty much at all times that we all take care of as a village because they have 24-hour care and jobs and golf cart riding all day and (laughs) fun things like that. And then we just absorb the ones that basically come up to to the fence, you know. I want to come back to something you said earlier in this interview, and that was 
you know, the company was in debt and broke, but we were going to out to events like these anyway, like nonprofit events, philanthropy, galas. And I love that because I feel like some companies approach it the opposite way. Like, okay, when we're like rolling the deep profit-wise, then we'll find a cause that we can support. But that was not the approach. No, Tito is completely cause-driven, and I've always been cause-driven. So, like, that's where our hearts were already. And so the vodka just became the vehicle and to be like right. really being able to contribute on a different level than just showing up. Like, what would you say to... Um, an entrepreneur or maybe um, a new small business hoping to get to become a, a Tito's someday that wants to make a difference but just kind of doesn't know where to start? I love this topic. And I, we did a South By panel about this. And I think that companies need to figure out what their story is. Um, a lot of times it's like, well, what are we going to do? And it's like sometimes that story comes over a little bit of time or you go – to your employees and ask what's important to them or what somebody might be going through. I think it you really have to look deeply inward to make sure that's authentic. And it's still good to always do good, but I really think at the core of every company, you could find what it is that's going to bring everyone together on a mission. Right. I just believe in that. Like we didn't know that our, you know, having dogs at work and just rescuing them was going to turn into, you know, a, a a program now that we're, you know, it's in stores. We've got service dogs at our tastings and yappy hours and galas, and we're fundraising, you know, for right. natural disasters. about these yappy hours. What does a yappy hour uh, look like? <laughs> There's one today, in fact. Um, a yappy hour is a uh, kind of a, a, a party for dogs at a Tito's account that allows pets or dogs. So we have, um, I now work with all sorts of pet bakeries, and they make treats or I have a treat truck come. Uh, we ha- I bring baby pools when it's warm out. Uh, <laughs> I give lots of Tito's dog stuff away and then I have the nonprofit there to benefit. And a lot of times um, the account and Tito's will come together to match drink proceeds for mm-hmm. the group and then I'll make them a big dog themed raffle basket and they raffle that off there. And so, so it's, it's a way for the nonprofits to yes. make money, but also a way for people who love dogs to find community with yes. one another. And it's not just that's what I mean, you and I have known each other now for a decade since mm-hmm. I've been in this job. And you know, you guys were bombarded in that time. This was like the beginning of the cocktail boom in Austin. Lots of nonprofits. I mean, there are more nonprofits in the city than practically anywhere else. Um, and you get bombarded. But you had to figure out that filter for yourself about like, well, what is really, what is our purpose here? And once you figured it out, it became very clear of what where you wanted to p- put that energy and where that time mm-hmm. and to recognize how you can transform donations into more donations. Yes. It's not just drink sales at those bars. You no, and it's not like we're just sitting there, donate. you know, right checks to people yeah. like we show up we collaborate with them you know I have events I've been in September I'm working on right now you know with adoption tours and that kind of thing so I wanted to ask about you travel the country working on events like this but you have mentioned that the dog culture in Austin is unlike any that you've seen elsewhere describe yes. that for me and I see lots I see it getting better and more exciting everywhere mm-hmm. but um Austin is just, I mean, we have, what, four or five sometimes dog events on the weekend, and it's a really tight-knit group of people. Um, yeah, I I always say, though, like, Austin just seems to have the biggest heart of any city. I mean, not just dog stuff, mm-hmm. but I feel like there's so many things for good every single night to do here, and everyone's really, really involved, and it seems like we accomplish things 
faster and make advances quicker. Um, but it's just everyone just seems really invested and dogs are part of that. And it's not just something for the patron class, quote unquote. It's not just for like the stereotypical philanthropist. You would think in your head it's for everybody. Mm-hmm. And often a cool night out has some kind of social advocacy component to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the way you were kind of framing uh, vodka for dog people earlier was like, you know, these passions were already there. They were in your personal DNA. And then this company structure allowed you to call them forth. And so what it sounds like you're saying is if you're part of an organization or leading an organization that wants to do good, it's like maybe just like once a month volunteering is a is, you know, like you said, always a a gracious thing to do, but to make that a sustainable part of your company mission, yeah. it's to like find that um, that one group of people or that one area of advocacy where like the passion is already there, where like people are already commenting on Facebook, they're already talking about it at the water cooler. It's already kind of a part, of, latent part of their lives. And the company can do things to draw that out and put their resources behind. Well, he's always encouraged us, like whatever your passion is, you know, we just have a few regulations, you know, of, of liquor law, of things that we can't touch, but it is all over the board. I mean, you guys even call it joy money. It's called joy money. Yeah. Tito, How awesome is that? Yeah, he gives us a budget that's just strictly for making the most impact with a nonprofit on their event or campaign. And you said that that's sort of like in exchange for having a large marketing bu- budget. Exactly. He, he, just, he wants he us to do things. To guys, yeah, he yeah. wants human connection yeah. and everything. I mean, it seems like a very obvious way for a company to get more out of their employees, too. I mean, not to get, I mean, that's not the goal no, here, but yeah, obviously, but like, like to be more invested in your space because you feel like you're um, part of something. And you're doing service for your community yeah. by going to work and by doing your job well. It bonds and, us really closely together. Oh, I, I mean, we all are like... I love going to work with yeah. those people. Yeah. It never really feels like work. But we have, you know, we take a trip, of, a volunteer trip as a company with our spouses once a year, you know. So I have, you know, cleaned up with my coworkers horrific conditions of shelters where people are doing the best they can, you know, wow. in places. Like, we've really been through some heavy things together. Tell us about how Hurricane Harvey last year also added another le- level yeah, to your philanthropy. It, yeah, it, it ju- I think it changed all of us um, because it wasn't just Harvey. It started with Harvey and it never stopped. And we had to learn a lot about giving fatigue, mm. you know, and mm-hmm. how we're going to start managing that better um, with trying to get everyone to join us. Mm-hmm. In Tell the us good. about that. That was hard. What is giving fatigue? Uh, I think everyone at first on the first storm rushed out and still, of course, it's not not enough and still there's so much to do but we just had hurricane after hurricane after fire after landslide mm-hmm. um it was just you know and people almost checked out you know i mean you cared if it was happening to you or if it was your state mm-hmm. but as far as getting you know matching donations four months later mm-hmm. when you've been yeah. asking you know we have to figure out a new formula for how to keep this because it may happen again. But and you're preparing I, for this year. I am. Um, that changed me. So, yeah, beginning of the year, I wanted to get other, not just, um, actually not nonprofits. I was looking really for other partner companies to um, come together with us to fundraise for, and this is only one example, but Wings of Rescue. We used them to, um, we did a big campaign in California for Wings of Rescue to pay for dog flights 
for Harvey dogs that were unclaimed or strays that were picked up, of which you know there were thousands and thousands. And they would then go to other shelters around the country where it was safe. Yes, a lot of them went. uh, We put seventy dogs out of the Austin airport. Um, They got, you know, they went to Seattle. Well, I know how much that flight costs and how hard it was. And I was also helping. Um, with our distributors and the Caribbean paying for flights out of there. Mm. So this time I started beginning of the year getting partners together to start kind of like a bank account with Wings of Rescue. So we won't have to scramble for these flights, I'm hoping. And if they don't, well, there's so many dogs in the south Mm -hmm. anyway. Like we have too many dogs in the south Mm -hmm. um, and up north. They don't have as many dogs to adopt that are rescue dogs because it's cold and the dogs simply just don't make it on the mm. streets. So we will always need dog flights to happen, but in an emergency now, hopefully I'll be able to to make that happen quicker. Well, Beth, I love the idea. I love the way that Tito's Vodka is reframing the idea of success mm-hmm. and why you go to work and why you create profits. So thank you for becoming a philanthropy company that just so happens to sell vodka. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can thank him. I mean, it's his heart. We're just all sort of um, feel like we're on the same page as him. So it's good for everybody. Listeners, we'd love to hear if you work for a company that has a similar philosophy, please email, email us. We are at loveaustin360 at statesman.com. Does a certain red cardigan reflexively make you smile? You'll do that and probably more at the new Mr. Rogers documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Our own Sharon Chapman gives us a preview. Thanks for joining us, Sharon. Hello, I'm so excited to be here. So you have seen the movie. I have seen the movie. Omar hasn't seen it yet. I haven't. I did read the Tom Genod, um Esquire profile from years ago that kind of made me a lifelong fan of Mr. Rogers after having gone through that cynical stage of growing up and not caring about him anymore <laughs> so I'm, I'm on board oh good he was Tom Junode was part of the doc, the documentary which I was sort of surprised about but I just left that movie feeling changed mm-hmm. feeling uh, I mean I had I wept almost the whole time <laughs> I'm sure there were some times where I was laughing and enjoying it but Sharon what were your takeaways you saw it during South by Southwest right I did yes and it was number one on my list at South by Southwest to not miss and I had to rush over to the screening and anyway I was so excited to be there and it really lived up to my expectations I'm a huge Mr. Rogers fan I mean I watched him growing up I think he had a huge influence on my life I mean I joke that he's the reason I love cardigans and that I I I mean I do come home and the first thing I do is take my shoes off like Mm -hmm. it feels like that's what you do at the end of the day is you change your shoes or you know like it's sort of a mark between the end of one part of your day and the beginning of the next part of your day. And I, yeah, it really lived up to my expectations. I learned things about him I didn't even know. And on a deeper level, it sort of reminded me of what I had learned from him as a child mm-hmm. and sort of, and I cried almost the whole time. And I didn't think <laughs> to bring tissues. <laughs> I don't know why. Luckily, I was sitting next to people I knew and one of them had like three packs of tissues and he, <laughs> within the first two minutes, just started handing them out to us down the road. It's quite we a bonding experience yeah. to well, be in a theater. I'm curious, what was the reaction from the South by crowd? I mean, was there like a Q&A after or anything like that? There was no Q&A. I, I, well, there might have been at the first screening. I went to the encore screening because it was so popular, you know, at South by they will add screenings of the movies that are really trending high within the crowd. So I went to the encore screening. So I don't know about the initial reaction, although I think it was really positive. Our reviewer raved about it. And she was, 
I don't know how old she is, but she's in her 20s. So I don't think she grew up watching Mr. Rogers oh, so in the same way. Kind of fresh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but she was had requested to review it and loved it. And that's what I think was interesting for me is I I did watch Mr. Rogers as a kid, but I wasn't a faithful every single day kind of watcher. I was always confused that he put a different pair of shoes on when he got home because I thought you just <laughs> took off your shoes and then didn't have shoes on. Oh right. Um, like, and, these, these are my pacing around the house shoes. Right. <laughs> and he always seemed you know just this quirky man who was just very gentle. You know, but it was a stark contrast to like Barney, which was a huge, you know, I was too old for Barney at that time, but I was just aware that sort of TV was changing and it, the 90s sort of were going away from this sort of slower, more thoughtful intellectual. I mean, Barney was teaching you about loving each other, too, but it was it was done in a way that really, uh, I don't want to say dumbed things down for kids, but it was so cartoonish and mm. so over the top with the songs. But this documentary helps you see that how far ahead of his time. Mr. Roger, Fred Rogers was when he started this. We've all seen that clip on Facebook where he's making the appeal to Congress to basically he's saving PBS, basically save PBS. Yeah. And he was so moved just by you know the movie shows that scene and it shows his his speech a little bit longer and you can hear him read the words to this song that's about what to do with when you're mad yes. and 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 the idea that you can stop you can stop when you're mad and if you've planned something that isn't pure doesn't you know feels revengeful you can also stop that and you can change your plans that is so high level thinking Mm -hmm. that's why he chose to say that sing that song to Congress because it was the level of complexity that he wanted to showcase that that kids are also capable of understanding and so um, yeah so the movie's full of factoids and things like that but I don't think you have to be you know have grown up with Mr. Rogers to appreciate it and, and I, I haven't seen it, so I mean, what, what's kind of the format of the of the um, of the documentary? Does it just go through his life, or does it talk more about his impact, or what's happened after he's died? Or? There's not as much about his childhood, right? It's and it's not a true narrative, really. I mean, it it jumps a little bit back and forth in time. It interviews his kids. He's got yes. two sons. I actually did not know oh, that he had kids going into it. I and there a daughter, right? I was the daughter in there too. I think I thought it was two da- a daughter and a son. Maybe so I misremember. One of the one of the sons is like a super hippie son, and the other yeah. one is sort of more clean cut. But you know, the movie starts out and it sets the tune, the tone for the whole documentary with this scene uh, with him sitting at a uh, piano. And you might have seen some other documentaries out there about uh, Johnny Costa, who was the actual the the music programmer for the show. He was an accomplished jazz musician, and so was Mr. Rogers. But Mr. Rogers was playing some little tunes on the piano, and he was talking about modulation. And how in jazz, there are modulations that are easier to understand, you know, major major modulations, to ones where there's minor chords involved. And it's much harder as a music listener to get into that modulation. But that doesn't mean it's not beautiful. Sometimes we like music that's challenging. Sometimes we, we, we seek that kind of modulation. And he pretty immediately starts talking about how his goal with his show is to help kids through the modulations of their lives. That was amazing. So this is in the first three minutes of the movie. Yeah. We oh. are And you'll start crying. And you start crying. <laughs> We're incorporating his love of jazz, his love of philosophy. He does get, the movie does get into his self-consciousness about his depth. You know, am, am I crazy that kids can understand this? Mm-hmm. Am I too naive in thinking that this is a type of television pro- program that everybody else in the country would like? That was really interesting to me to watch him. You know, he was sure of himself, but I think he also knew that he was really radical. And this movie really left me with this huge appreciation that he was able to break so many boundaries and so, break so many rules about, you know, he talked openly about um, when he wanted to get into television, it was in response to the slapstick comedy that we were seeing with clowns, like, throwing pies in each other's faces. And he's like, kids know more than this. They are they are aware. They see things that we don't think they're seeing. 
and they can understand things that we don't think they can understand. And so he and that I think ultimately is the most touching thing is to watch him engage with children, honoring them as whole human beings who are not here to follow our instructions. Yes, acknowledging that they are people with feelings and their feelings are complex and they might have negative feelings sometimes and teaching them that that's okay to have these feelings. You don't have to act on them and hurt people, but you can acknowledge them. I mean, I was blown away. I didn't remember seeing this as a kid that he did a whole week on death and assassinations after Robert Kennedy died. Oh yeah. I remember reading about that. It was, it was just groundbreaking and amazing and acknowledging that kids are aware that something's going Mm -hmm. on and they're hearing their parents and they're probably seeing their parents cry and, and you know whatever reaction they're seeing and it's okay to talk to them about death mm-hmm. it's very similar to the the mr hooper uh, sesame street yes. episode where they kind of tackled it head on and, and yeah. answered those questions that kids have was that in response to the rfk assassination or what was uh, that mr hooper was a character on sesame street and the actor died and so oh. they did a whole episode of like where's mr hooper or what happened oh, to mr God. hooper and they didn't oh just, yeah <laughs> and it's powerful and they didn't just replace him and say here's a new mr hooper was <laughs> no, it like, was it big bird or somebody you know is in the in the show is asking you know, like well what happened to mr and they have yeah. to, you know, the adults have to kind of sit him down and explain. I would say that one happened. of the scenes that stuck with me the most and was absolutely the, the time when I was trying to con- not control my emotions, but just not lose it in the theater was uh, when they were re-showing the 9-11 clip that he did. Yes. Because he had already retired, or, you know, he he'd, um, cl- not closed the show, but, you know, well, yeah, closed the show. And um, and just a couple of years later, uh, September, September 11th happened, and his producers asked him to do this segment for the adults. I mean, yes, it was for kids and he was in Mr. Rogers and in that character, but you could tell that it was a coping mechanism for all of us to deal with this really profound, dramatic, terrible thing that had happened to our country. And to see him grapple with what to say, they they actually showed sort of before he started him getting quiet, getting clear, because it was un- it was totally unscripted. He just mm-hmm. spoke from his heart. I think a lot of his monologues were just spoken, which shows actually um, this was a ministry for him. He in, he went to seminary, was going to be, take a traditional path towards you know being a minister, and he pivoted and realized that this was his ministry. And I don't know if he got ordained. But I feel like he did. Maybe the movie helped me really see that. Oh, absolutely! This was his, you know, his calling. Yeah, and we were all in his church. <laughs> there was a really smart uh, tweet I saw last week as as this movie was kind of rolling out and as as it was starting to get some buzz and, and reaction and, and apparently doing very well so far. Uh, was that we're really craving kindness right now? That we're really craving figures who are kind and respectful, and you know, given the rhetoric and what's going on right now, and and how in the toxicity of Twitter, uh, that that this seems like the perfect time for something like this to kind of restore your faith in humanity. Speaking of that, I think one of the moments I cried the hardest during the movie was when they were inter- they had several interviews with Francois Clemens, who played the police officer on the show for years, and he talked about Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, as his friend, telling him that he loved him. And he said, I had never had a man in my life, like even his own father, because he was gay and he had been closeted for a long time. And he said, having a man tell me I love you for who you are and who you are is enough was so profound for him. And it just, I mean, I'm tearing up thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, we're and all I think, about to start crying. <laughs> yeah. I, know, I think that message that Mr. Rogers had of, you're enough just by being alive, you know, like that mm-hmm. gives you the right to everything and, mm-hmm. and you don't have to prove yourself. 
in a different way. I think that was a theme mm-hmm, throughout of it. It's mm-hmm. like, you don't have to earn your right to mm-hmm. be loved. That, there was some pushback that they talked about in the movie briefly, that basically there are people in this country who think that that language around enti- it leads to entitlement, leads yes. to people thinking that they deserve things that they that they don't actually deserve. And that even when he was on the air, there were people who pushed back against that. And I think there's you know a section of the popula- population now who still might believe it. I haven't seen any negative press or tweets around this movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of hard to hate on Mr. Rogers, but I, you know, people protested his funeral. Because that was the, shocking. The, um, yeah. the Kansas church, um, I forget the name of the church. Fred Phelps. Or the Fred oh, Phelps church. Whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah but, um, because yeah. They, he, they basically, you know, wanted to protest because he was giving a pass to gay people. And so, yeah, I agree though, Omar, you're so right that this is exactly the kind of movie that we, we crave and want. There's a movie called, I think, Fred and Me on Netflix uh, that's about oh. another close family friend of theirs. And that was sort of like when I knew the movie wasn't coming out for months, I watched that movie <laughs> and it was great. There's also, a, um, a, you can look at, for it on YouTube, a Johnny Costa documentary about about the music oh. and, and just sort of about how uh, how much music influenced that entire show jazz specifically and there's a bio- may believe yeah, yeah. And there's a biopic in the work in the works with Tom Hanks as Mr. Rogers based on the Tom Genod story which if you haven't read it uh, I think I might have read it like 10 years ago but if you haven't read it it's a magazine profile of Mr. Rogers that will that will level you it is so good um, and it's in Esquire you can just go to Esquire.com and search for Tom Genode Mr. Rogers in fact I was doing a Google search today and if you just type Tom Genode Mr. Rogers comes up like right next to his name oh. so yeah look for that story it's fantastic it's a great read and then go see this documentary it's yeah, apparently so great oh. and I just realized Ruth Bader Ginsburg has a son and a daughter in the documentary about her that's what I was getting mixed oh. up with so Mr. Rogers another great documentary yes. though recently mm-hmm. we are really yeah. gifted with these things so um, it's th- a golden age of documentaries right now Yeah. thank you Sharon for oh, so yeah, thank you. sharing some of your thoughts on this. Um, listeners, if you have any reactions to the show, uh, we would absolutely love to hear from you on Twitter. We are at LoveAwesome360. Thanks for being a good neighbor, Sharon. Oh, thank you. Webb, welcome to the Web Report. Thank you, Tolly. Thank you, Addie. Glad to be here as always. What has been buzzing on the internet this week? So or recently. This, well, this week and recently and always, <laughs> we're talking about y'all. <laughs> y'all. It's yeah. got like a secret origin story that is more complicated than you think. It's true. Well, so like with most words, it's kind of hard sometimes to pin down exactly when did we start saying this, why did we start saying this. And uh, at the Web Report, we always like to kind of look at those Texas or Austin icons uh, to try to kind of find a little bit more about them. We've done it with avocados. We've done it with quesos. So Mrs. Now we're Baird's, Baird's Bread. bread. <laughs> Mrs. Baird's Bread. So now we're doing it with y'all. And so we did a little bit of Googling, which is what we do. And uh, we found this really great slate explainer from a couple years ago that kind of delved a little bit into the history of the word and when it first appeared. The Oxford English Dictionary pegs the first printed appearance of you all, as we might understand it, to 1824, right? So that's <laughs> wow, pretty early. Think huh. about that. This was pre-Alamo. But, but also, like, I'm shocked it, like, took that long to, like, get people <laughs> mm-hmm. to realize that you all would be a significant <laughs> greeting. Yeah. And so then y'all 
with the contraction, the Y apostrophe A-L-L, first appeared in print according to the Oxford English Dictionary in 1856 in a snippet of Southern dialect. Okay. Oh. Yeah. All right. Yeah, so that's kind of the distinction we were making off mic is the fact that we all find y'all as a perfectly useful contraction that the rest of the country has not adopted. Mm-hmm. So take us into that regionality. Well, so about that. Slate also cited an 1886 New York Times article called, and get this, this is probably the best headline ever, Odd Southernisms, a few examples of quaint sayings in South Carolina. So this is talking about South Carolina. (laughs) And it points out that y'all is an abbreviation of what it called the ridiculous colloquialism, you all. Oh, those cute Southerners. Not not elitist at all. No. Those cynical (laughs) New York Timers. Yeah. New York Times, always good in New York Times. In the 1880s, they were already coming up with little did you know from Mm -hmm. the the South, (laughs) those other people down there. Can you get what those strange creatures are doing down there? So uh, obviously you all is not those are two words that have been around for a long time (laughs) and so it makes sense that you all has appeared. Like you can find you all in the Bible. So really the question here was when did it become this southern phrase that Mm -hmm. we know and love? When did Jesus say y'all? Y'all, yeah. You need to just gather around. There was some y'all fixing to make some bread and water (laughs) into wine. (laughs) Gonna multiply some fish, some loaves, <laughs> you all. Uh, so, kind of the origins of where the southern version of this came from uh, were explored in this in this slate article. And a couple possible origins were the Scots Irish yeah, which I like, and that's Y E mm. space A W, and then also uh, it coming from African American uh, vernaculars or African English Creole that kind of spread through Southern American yeah. English at large. So, uh, and there is some talk on various things you can look up on the internet about how maybe it's just a little bit of both those things and both those groups had plenty of opportunities to mix and mingle in that 1800s kind of era uh, for it to become the y'all that we know and love. And, uh, but if it's not that, I also found a lot of historical examples of y'alls, maybe not the y'all that we have come to Like in print, for example? Yeah. Plural. All y'alls. Y'all, y'alls. And so the kind of the possessive. possessive, possessive, Yeah. (laughs) Y'alls. So kind of the, the idea here is, um, these y'alls were maybe there. It's a lot of like English plays and poems that use this sort of meter. And so it's not really the y'all that we know because it's not y'all used colloquially. It's a y'all used in service of this, this meter. And so there's some examples from some poems and some plays in like the 1700s. And actually, uh, the earliest one I found was in uh, an English history of Ethiopia written in 1631 that includes a y'all. But again, it's sort of not the same y'all that we're right, talking about. Right, right. I mean, right. think about like in Spanish, you've got ustedes and vosotros. And in Spain, they use vosotros, which is literally you all, all mm-hmm. of you all in front of me. And it's really interesting to think about like, what's the difference between just you yeah. or they and all y'alls. But I'm from Missouri and didn't start saying that until I moved here. And I feel like it's pretty comfortable in my my vocabulary now. My kids say it. I feel like the texification of my of <laughs> yeah. me is happening in yeah. front of you. It's actually a thing for me. I have noticed I've never really had too big of a Texas accent. I'm from Austin. And I think if you're from Austin, especially if you're like I was born in the 80s, so in the late <laughs> 80s, that almost the 90s. So at that point, like I don't think a lot of people who are born here really have too distinguishable of a Southern accent. Um, there's some recordings and like tapes of me as a kid. Usually, like when I'm around my family, I think mm-hmm. where I sound a little more a little more Texan than maybe mm-hmm. I used to, mm-hmm. uh, or maybe than I do now. But y'all is a thing that I think of as being like I'm from Texas, and you can tell I'm from Texas because I say y'all. Yeah, Tell yeah. Do you say y'all? 
Oh, yeah, and I have my whole life. Um, <laughs> but Eric, next um, dispatch for linguistic history, can we send you to New Jersey to research the origins of used guys? I would love to. I would Great. love to, yeah. I, I'm willing to do a cross-country tour of the various forms of uh, pronouns. Excellent. Second-person As- plural Associated pronouns. Press, Reuters, we got your writer right here. It's me. <laughs> Eric Webb, thanks so much. Thanks, y'all. Now we've come to the moment in our show where we have a toast. This is where we go around the table making some recommendations to you, our listener. So, Omar, advise our dear listener. Hey, I'm back with another Nintendo Switch recommendation. I, I recommended the <laughs> Nintendo Labo, the cardboard thing, which was is still a big hit in my house. Uh, You're like number one brand, brand advocate. I'm number Nintendo. one Nintendo. Are you it's getting great, paid? It is a really good console. Like I, I, Nintendo really struggled with the last generation, the Wii U, and they really bounced back and have, have been doing some cool stuff. Anyway, but this is this is a game that actually is not just for Nintendo Switch. I just happen to be playing it on there. You can get it on almost any console. Uh, it's called Overcooked. And uh, if you've ever played those uh, kind of iPad games like Dining Dash where you're like, you know, trying to serve customers and wait on table. Do you <laughs> it's have... like my freaking nightmare. Why would I play that as a game? Exactly. <laughs> Kids love these games because it's like you're serving up customers and you're baking the burgers and you're doing whatever pizza. There's uh, so many variations of these games. Well, over Overcooked is like the best iteration of this idea that I've seen where you're like making ingredients and cooking and trying to serve tables but the the twist of this is usually when you're playing these games on iPad it's one player you know you're playing you're trying to serve the customers by yourself this is a cooperative game oh which <laughs> makes it both really fun and infuriating. <laughs> it, this is just the service industry. It is, but like brought I've, to life. I've been playing it with my kids on a video game. I, I've heard of couples like getting divorced over this game. What? <laughs> no, not really. But it, it's very stressful because you're like, okay, you do this and I do that, and then once it starts, like there's a timer and things get heated up and is, it gets is more someone cast as the manager? No, no, you're you you decide who does what. So you are the manager. You're like two people in a in a. Wait, why is this fun? It's because you're having to decide a division of labor. Like, oh, you go to cut the ma- tomatoes. No, no, I need, I need those tomatoes on this bun. I need, no, I, I got to get this quarter out. And it, yeah, Addie's looking at me like, who would ever want to play? I don't like this. This does life. not sound escapist <laughs> no, whatsoever. I, I don't know. I mean, I guess I can actually put myself in that position where like doing tasks that for other people is like, well, I mean, I really enjoyed working at HEB for a story, for yeah. instance, and like checking out things. I can, mm-hmm. I can envision a game where mm-hmm. I'm like, checking out trying to like grocery shop and like get it all under a budget or something i can see that being fun but for some reason restaurant play just like gives me a heart attack have you have you worked <laughs> if for restaurants before yes yeah yeah, yeah that's it, yeah well this game the, the 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 killer aspect of it i think is that multiplayer is that you are with other people and you can play up to four players i believe uh and we've only played it two player like with my daughters or me you know we kind of switch it up who's playing with who but it's it's like you have to work together you that's the lesson is like you have to coordinate you have to be like you do this and I do that and I'm over here I'm closer that's to the so cool. I'm closer to the cutting board so let me do the cutting and you know like you have to really Is there anyone cooperate. who comes in and they're like guys for real I work for Olive Garden and everyone else is like okay let's listen to that guy uh not in my <laughs> that comes in like brandishing their real world chops but but see the, the great the brilliant thing about this game is that there's a fine line between like fun and chaotic <laughs> and like the the Lucy you know chocolates down the conveyor belt timer thing where you're like under pressure and a complete screaming match freak out <laughs> and so I've had I've had times where my kids are just giggling like crazy because of how like oh, oh my god uh-huh. like, like that chaotic thing 
and then I've had where they're literally screaming at each other that they didn't do what they were supposed to do. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, it's off. I'm turning it off. Go to bed. It's done. We're done. That uh, happens with Fortnite in my house where I'm like, boys, it's just a game. Yeah. If I hear you speaking to each other that way, you will not play it. Oh, it yeah. turns on a yeah. dime between when it's fun and when it's like, okay, this is not fun anymore. Yeah. You're yeah. turning this off. Fine line. Fine I line. love that it's a cooperative game, though. There are so few games like that where everybody's working on a team or not mm-hmm. competing against I each other. I tried playing it one player and it's impossible because you, you can't you have to you can't control the two or three bodies at the same time. Like yeah. they don't, they're not automated. You have to <laughs> physically move them yourself. Like this is no fun. Uh, but multiplayer, yes. Oh, so Overcooked Special Edition is on Switch, but it's, I think it's also on iPad, PS4, Xbox. Like you can pretty much get this game anywhere. It's been out for a while. Uh, but it it's it will raise your blood pressure and <laughs> not in a good way necessarily. So I have a short and tidy and related, mm-hmm. well, kind of recommendation, uh, which because it's food related. Uh, I went to the draft house to see Mr. Rogers and had the chilaquiles for breakfast oh. of your <gasps> former toast. Oh my gosh, it was amazing. So anyway, I can't, I just can't say enough about uh, remind the, the listener what chilaquiles are. Oh, sorry, chilaquiles. Uh, unlike migas, so migas are scrambled eggs with chips in it. Chilaquiles are where you you fry the tortilla chips in uh, the salsa and. So, but what, here's what was so amazing. It was so darn crunchy. It was served in this little yeah. individual sized cast iron skillet. And so they had like fired it really hot and all the edges were super crispy. And then they had fried eggs on top, which are kind of hard to eat in the dark. My whole complaint about the draft house is that it's difficult to eat food when you can't yeah. see it. Yeah, I was going to ask, what, what is the draft house variation on this? So, okay, it's crispy corn tortilla chips, smoky tomato chipotle sauce, black beans, roasted corn, cheddar cheese, and cotija, which you could taste, and sriracha sour cream with fried eggs on top. There's a lot wow. going on. So it, it was, <laughs> but I think if you would see it, I, I mean, I still... It's, com- it's compact. I couldn't see it. <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> no, no. So, but what what happened was, I was I was intimidated. I actually rarely order food at the draft house for this reason. I just, but I was starving, and it was breakfast time, brunchy time. So, ordered it. Realized that there were some eggs, so I decided to cut those up, and then kind of just stirred it all together. But with, as soon as I had the first bite, I was like, "Holy expletive! This is." These are the best chilaquiles I've ever had. Okay, I'm, I'm trying those. And it's $10.50, which is actually kind of reasonable for the draft house. And, are they, yeah. is it a new menu item? I don't think so. And it says it's uh, served all day, every day. So you can huh. get it even well, in the evening. Well, time, here's the so. trick about eating food at the draft house when it's dark is you take the food, you put it under I'm, the under the thing oh. with the light under the, oh, under the, the, uh, the so bar. And, but then you have yeah. to have a sense memory of like, Take a snapshot with your head of like that's right. what this looks like, and then bring it back up into the dark, and you have to remember where everything was. That's what it was so okay. Cool All right, it's halfway. It was a big surprise. Every time you sort of took a, a forkful, you weren't really sure which part of the chilaquiles you were going to get, but it it was really well composed because not once did you get an entire bite of sour cream. For instance, mm. so it's anyway, usually one big lob. Yeah, yeah, and I just—I mean, I've had mediocre food at the draft house for as long as I've lived in Austin, and this was the first dish that I would absolutely recommend, and will probably get again. Yum. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Well, Tully? well done, draft house. What are um, you into this week? Okay, so I recently started listening to a podcast from the CBC called Other People's Problems, and this is kind of a takeoff on Esther Perel's "Where Should We Begin?" and that you're listening in on someone's therapy session. But um, A, these people use their names, so, like, that's a difference. And B, the topics, like, are across the board. It's not just on couple stuff. Mm -hmm. It's, like, on generalized anxiety or, you know, time management or this one guy is is talking about his sexual dynamic with his wife and, like, um, Hillary McBride, the host, is breaking it down. No, is she the therapist? She's the therapist. Okay. She's the host. So she's... Psychotherapist in the Esther Perel vein, that good? Um, she's not as like p- 
poetic as mm-hmm. Esther Perel. Like, you know how Esther Perel will just be having a normal conversation with someone and she's like, so you are saying you are Oedipus mm-hmm. in this relationship, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, I say that all the time. <laughs> and, and, and the people are like, exactly. Yeah, she and she drops, just kind of like yeah. puts you under a trance with her like European well, I like the, prose the, vibes. When she steps back a minute and like, this was the moment where I made the mistake, you know, yeah, and I should have exactly. asked this. And it's like, oh, yeah. yeah. She right. speaks in universal truths that come out of yes, nowhere, Yes, yeah. And she's so well-read and worldly that like, it's like the wisdom is being channeled from like all across like time and history. But, but so this, per- this person is not that. She- <laughs> but Hillary McBride is like a millennial, is like just a Canadian chick, a millennial. I want to downplay, downplay Hillary McBride. Like she's like, like an, an incredible mental health professional, but she's very, very down to earth, extremely down to earth. Um, and she does do that thing of breaking away and saying like, all right, so like this is a common thing theme I see mm. in like couples of this age mm. bracket in 2018. Cool. And so she like does break away and kind of does that direct address to you the listener, but I don't know, I te- like I tend to geek out for some reason in this time of my life on like communication skills mm-hmm. and like relationship tactics. Like I don't know, I just think it's interesting not just for my own life but for other people. And um, I like getting insight on how to be a better communicator. Does that does that come up in the house where you're like you say something really profound and Ross is like, "Did you hear that on a podcast?" <laughs> is that Esther Perel? I, I think like I think I think like Ross like has my number and that he can <laughs> like see. <laughs> like, and why are you saying it with a Belgian accent? It was, <laughs> yeah. And that like whatever you know insight I have is like probably not my own original wisdom. It's probably something I heard on a podcast. <laughs> But uh, still, other people's problems. If you like, you know, developing those skills for how to reflect and having, you know, um, just like a better way to kind of like sort through issues in your life in a detached way, then I recommend this podcast. I think that is, I think that's so cool that we have these podcasts that are like this because, I mean, therapy is one thing and it's really good to go to therapy, but I think it's really helpful to hear other people in therapy. Oh, yeah. To yeah. know that you're not alone. Because I think some people don't know how to totally. talk to a therapist, for instance, or, mm-hmm. or they feel like their problems are so exclusionary that nobody else would understand. But yes. all these podcasts really tear down those stereotypes. Well, we've talked before that like one hour uh, conference panels make for great podcasts. I think the same thing for like a one hour therapy session mm-hmm. is like the perfect Totally. For a podcast. Well, and there is something true, Addie, about that voyeuristic quality and mm-hmm. that like sometimes when you're having your own feelings about your own issue, it's difficult to get on the outside of mm-hmm. them um, and be rational. But listening to someone else like process it with a therapist, kind of just whether you are conscious of it or not, gives you those own, it just builds that own muscle for stepping back and being like, okay, like, let me see if I can assess things from a more objective place. Mm. So so good. Thanks, Holly. All that. right. Uh, yeah, Chilaquiles and even more Nintendo. Overcooked. Great. Good. Uh, and other people's problems. Thanks, guys. That's our show. She's Addie. He's Omar. I'm Tali. Check out the Austin 360 Instagram and Facebook for more about life in Austin. And talk to us on Twitter at loveaustin360. If you liked what you heard today, leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. It helps other people discover the show. I love you so much. The Austin 360 podcast is produced by Alyssa Vidales. The show is made with support from features editor Sharon Chapman and the entire Austin 360 staff. Our theme music is from local band Hardproof, which you should definitely check out at hardproofmusic.com. 
You can find more about the show and its contributors at austin360.com slash loveaustin360. And if you want to pitch an idea for the show or give us feedback, shoot us a note at loveaustin360 at statesman.com or leave a voicemail at 512-445-3672. This show is brought to you by our sponsor, Lexus of Austin. We couldn't do the show without you, dear listeners, and we can't thank you enough for lending us your ears, your comments, and your SPF 100 lotion. Until next week, we'll see you sipping on avocado margaritas at Cura's. Bye.